Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, thank you for joining us here on Then and Now for another look at first century history. Before we begin, I want to let our new listeners know that there is a lesson outline available for each of these podcasts. Each of them are in PDF format. Many listeners like to have it open in front of them as they listen. If you don't have the PDF, simply email me and request it. If you're planning on being a regular listener and would like to receive the PDF as soon as it's ready, without having to request it each time, simply email me and request to be put on the PDF list. The PDF contains all my lesson notes and resource references so that you don't have to write them down while you're listening. It's free for the asking, so simply email me. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org, and that preterist1 is the number one, not spelled out. So preterist1 at preterist.org. Let's pray before we begin. Sovereign Lord God, the only true God, who sits enthroned above the cherubim in the unseen realm above. We exalt you and adore you for creating us and choosing us to be your servants, and especially for regenerating us from our spiritual deadness in our rebellion, disobedience, and unbelief. Be with us here in these studies as we look at how you providentially acted in history to build your kingdom. Teach us how to seek your kingdom first in our lives and live in such a way that we bring much glory and honor to you. It is in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. Many thanks to all of you who are sending us questions and comments. It is so encouraging to know that you are listening and that you are understanding what we're saying. Your feedback helps me see how well I am communicating. This podcast ministry is devoted to the chasing after the biblical and historical truth, wherever it leads and whatever it takes. If you are a truth seeker, this podcast is for you. If you are like me, you are tired of all the confusing voices out there in the religious world who compromise the truth and lead people astray. We need certainty and absolutes to anchor our faith, so we are not cast about by every wind of speculation and false doctrine that blows through. We need to go back to the Bible to see what it really says, not what others want us to think that it says. We need to be Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see whether the things we have been taught are really true. That is what we're all about here on this podcast. We are fellow chasers after the biblical and historical truth. Well, we received some email this week from folks in six different foreign countries. France, Netherlands, India, Canada, Indonesia, and Australia. Somebody down on the uh, opposite side of the world in Australia. Plus, we received about 30 new listeners who joined us this week and requested to be put on the PDF list. I want to share a few of the comments that we received with you before we get into our lesson. 
One dear sister mentioned that she subscribed to the podcast on her smartphone. That is a great way to listen to them on the commute to and from work or while we're working around the house or traveling. I forgot to mention that option in previous podcasts, but you will notice that there is a button on the top screen of the podcast page which says Grab Our RSS Feed. Click on that and it will guide you through the process of subscribing to our podcast for your mobile devices so that you'll be notified as soon as the next podcast is posted there. This listener uh, who mentioned that she subscribed to it on her smartphone uh, also requested and received all the PDF lesson outlines for all 26 of the podcasts that we have posted here on Buzzsprout. Now she's going back through all 26 of them to get caught up on the current podcast. One dear brother wrote, Awesome podcast last week, Ed. Thanks for taking the time to so carefully answer your listener questions while still affirming the wonderful hope we have in Christ. Another dear preacher in Indonesia wrote, requesting some of the PDF lesson outlines to share with his congregation there in Indonesia. That is so amazing and encouraging to see these teachings spreading to other parts of the world. And last but not least, there was a very perceptive question that we received by one of our listeners. He said, I listened to the Where Did All the Christians Go podcast from May the 19th, 2013. The question I have is, were there any writings by non-Christians about the missing people after 70 AD? There should have been some writings about those who came back from the dead when Jesus died on the cross also. I know there was no regular newspaper to tell the news and the obituaries like we have nowadays, but there should have been something I would think it would be a big news story if my son, who died 10 years ago, would show up at my door, like it happened in the first century when those saints were raised and came out of their tombs at the time of Jesus' resurrection. Well, my reply to this dear brother is, so sorry to hear about your son. Appreciate you mentioning that, and we certainly hope and pray that you have comfort. In regard to the the historical documentation for the saints resurrected in Jesus' day. There are some apocryphal writings, a couple of them that are called the Acts of Pilate and the Gospel of Nicodemus, both of which purport to be a report of the reappearance of those saints at the time of Jesus' resurrection. And in regard to the resurrection event at the Parousia, even though it was an event in the unseen realm, it was still noticed by the priest in the temple on Pentecost in AD 66, according to Josephus and Yosipon and Tacitus and Hegesippus and Eusebius. We have five different historical accounts telling us about this event that was noticed by the priest on Pentecost in A.D. 66. The priests testified about what they heard and felt and experienced in the temple, all of which occurred in the unseen realm, 
but with some of its effects heard and felt by the priest. Neither those priests nor Josephus knew what to make of that event. They simply recorded what they heard and felt and let everyone explain it as best as they could. I wrote a couple of articles on this event for the Fulfill magazine. If any of our listeners would like to have copies of those two articles in PDF format, simply email me and request them. The title of those two articles are Let Us Go From Here. Those articles contain all the historical references and quotes from Josephus, Yosipon, Tacitus, Hegesippus, and Eusebius. We need to note here that this same request for documentation of the AD 70 fulfillments has been asked by our futurist critics in regard to the parousia. If we took the word rapture out of our listener's question and replaced it with the word parousia, notice the historical problem it creates for all preterists, not just for the rapture preterists, but for all preterists. Here's the question again. Were there any writings by non-Christians about the parousia after 70 A.D.? There should have been some writings about it. I know there was no regular newspaper to tell the news and obituaries like we have now, but there should have been something. I would think that it would have been a big news story if Christ really returned at that time. Now, do you see how that simple question about the rapture becomes a real big problem if we insert the word parousia in that question in place of the word rapture? It creates a historical documentation problem for all preterists in regard to the parousia. Do you see the problem here? Our fellow preterists who used the lack of documentation as an argument against the rapture have just opened the door for the futurists to use that same argument against the parousia. They have legitimized the argument of our futurist critics who demand historical documentation for the occurrence of the parousia. They are shooting themselves and all of us preterists in the foot by taking that approach, which plays right into the hands of our futurist critics. We have seen how the rapture solves the documentation problem for the parousia and rescues the preterist view out of its historical dilemma. But we have not looked at the attempts by non-rapture preterists to explain the silence of the post-70 Christians. We need to do that, and we will do that here in this lesson. So the question is, how do our fellow preterists who reject the rapture solution explain the silence of the saints about the parousia after 70 A.D.? Over the last 10 years, I have interacted with several fellow preterists who are critical of the rapture. Their first attempt at refuting it was to invoke the documentation problem. For instance, one of the critics wondered how hundreds of thousands of Christians could be raptured up into the sky in plain sight of everyone, leaving their clothes behind, and yet not be mentioned by anyone in the historical record afterwards. Well, we have already noticed that there were not tens of thousands of true Christians left alive on earth after the Neuronic persecution, nor was the rapture anything like what this critic described. There were no bodies visibly floating up into the air, leaving their clothes behind, so it was not the big spectacle which non-believers would have noticed. 
Furthermore, as we have seen, this same documentation problem applies just as much to the parousia, resurrection, and judgment as it does to the rapture. If it is valid for our fellow preterists to use the documentation problem against the rapture, then it is just as valid for the futurists to use the documentation problem against the parousia. And that is the very dilemma that all of us preterists have to face, not just the rapture preterist. The futurist critic has a legitimate objection to the preterist view if the documentation problem is a valid argument. All the futurist needs to do to make his point is to prove that there was at least one true Christian still alive on earth after the parousia who failed to let everyone know that it had occurred. If he can prove that there were several pre-70 saints still around after AD 70, then his case becomes almost insurmountable. The greater the number of Christians left around after AD 70, the greater the problem of their silence about the parousia becomes for us. It may be possible to believe that one or two or a few Christians left around might have died before they could say anything about the parousia, but if there was a significant number of Christians all over the diaspora left around after 70 AD who failed to document the parousia, then we preterists indeed have a big documentation problem on our hands. And that is the very scenario that we need to look at here in this session. When my fellow preterist rapture critics realized that there were not hundreds of thousands of Christians left around after the Neuronic persecution and the great apostasy, they immediately swung to the opposite extreme, i.e. flip-flopped, and began saying that all the true believers who knew about the parousia were either killed in the Neuronic persecution, fell away in the great apostasy, or became confused by Hellenistic thinking immediately after AD 70, so that there was no one left around after AD 70 who still correctly understood the time and nature of fulfillment of the parousia. Therefore, they were silent about it because they didn't understand it, or they were dead, or they fell away. These dear brothers who are fellow preterists and critics of the rapture think that they have solved the documentation problem by taking this approach, that all the saints were either killed in the neuronic persecution, fell away in the great apostasy, or became confused by Hellenistic thinking afterwards. They think they've solved the documentation problem. That is their silver bullet now. They're breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back, thinking that they have come up with the final solution to the silence problem. However, the futurist critics are not buying it. And as you have seen in the last few podcasts, I'm not buying into that idea either. And I'll explain why here. Theoretically, it may be possible for some to imagine that all the true Christians were either killed or apostatized before the parousia. But that possibility flies in the face of several biblical texts, as we will see here shortly. The writers of our New Testament clearly and forcefully indicate that there would be a significant number of true Christians still alive on earth at the time of the parousia. And they were certainly not all killed or apostatized or confused by Hellenistic thinking before the parousia. 
We're going to see a few texts which prove this. Jesus stated clearly in three different gospel texts that some of them, the elect, would remain alive until his return. Matthew 16, verse 28, Matthew 24, verse 22, and Luke 18, verses 7 and 8. And Jesus surely did not kill them at his return. So they would have remained alive on earth after his parousia unless he took them with him at his return. And this is exactly what he promised to do. In the parable of the bridegroom, or the parable of the ten virgins, however you want to label it, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 and following, Jesus said he would return for his bride and take her to be with him to his father's house in heaven. The same idea that we find in John chapter 14, verse 3, where he said he would receive them to himself when he comes again. According to the rapture critics, however, and their theory about all the true Christians either falling away or being killed before the parousia, the bride was nowhere to be found at the coming of the bridegroom. She had been killed in the persecution, or apostatized, or sank into Hellenistic thinking. But this parable of the bridegroom, or the ten virgins, also shows that not only the bride was taken at the parousia, but that a faithful five of the ten virgins were taken to the wedding feast at the father's house as well. That does not sound like all the true Christians were killed or went into apostasy. The groom did return and did take his bride in procession to his father's house, just like he promised and just like that parable teaches. There was a bride five faithful virgins, and a whole company of invited wedding guests who went in procession from the bride's house on earth to the groom's prepared dwelling places in his father's heavenly house. We're talking about a rapture here, and that's exactly what that parable is teaching. It's not teaching that there would be no bride faithful to him when he returned. And thus he would return to the father's house with no bride and no faithful virgins and no people to accompany in that procession. You see the problem here? That parable is very explicit in teaching that Christ would return and receive his bride to himself and take her to be with him in the prepared house. Furthermore, in Matthew 16, 28 and its parallels, Jesus said that some of those standing here in Judea, would live and remain until the parousia. How many is some? He said some of those. How many is some? It's certainly more than one. In Matthew 24, verses 21 through 31, Jesus stated that the great tribulation would be cut short so that his elect, his chosen ones, which is a plural number, more than one, could be saved. So he cut the tribulation short so that his elect ones could be saved. How many elect ones survived the Neuronic persecution and remained alive to be saved at the parousia? And by the way, were they saved at the parousia? Well, Jesus said they would be. They would remain elect. They're not going to fall away into apostasy. And they weren't deceived by the Hellenistic thinkers. And they certainly weren't killed because he says he cut short the tribulation in order to save them and to rescue them and they would be alive at the parousia when they would be saved or gathered by the angels that he would send forth to gather them at his parousia. 
So it was certainly more than one of those elect ones that would be rescued out of the tribulation and kept safe until the parousia. Since the elect were already in Christ and saved spiritually, we have to ask, what was this additional kind of salvation and gathering that they would receive at the parousia? A rapture, perhaps? Who were those elect saints that would be saved and gathered by the angels at the parousia? Were they Jewish believers only, or did it include Gentile believers also? There are a number of biblical texts which imply that Gentile believers throughout the diaspora and Roman world were also a part of the elect ones that would be saved and gathered at the parousia. For instance, Romans 8 verse 33 Colossians 3.12, 2 Timothy 2.10, and Titus 1.1. All of these texts mention Gentile elect believers who were in Rome, Colossae, Ephesus, and Crete. Well, how many elect ones is that? If there's only one in each of those cities, that would be at least four elect ones who remained alive until the parousia. That's certainly more than one. That's several. How many elect ones? Certainly more than a few in those four different cities in the Gentile world. And they were in areas besides Judea, Palestine, and Pella. Do you see what this implies? There was a significant number of elect ones left around at the parousia. But wait, there's more. Jesus is not the only one who taught that some of the pre-seventy saints would survive the Great Tribulation and remain alive until the parousia. Notice what Apostle Paul said about this. Paul told the Corinthians that not all of the pre-seventy saints would sleep. He says, we will not all sleep, but we all will be changed. So he says, not all of the pre-seventy saints would sleep or die but that some of them would remain alive until the parousia to experience the bodily change that he talks about there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17, Paul explicitly says that some of those Thessalonian saints would live and remain until the parousia, at which time they would be caught up to be with Christ and be reunited with their departed loved ones. Jesus would bring their departed loved ones with him when he descended from heaven and would snatch up the living saints to be reunited with them in his presence. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now this reunion of the resurrected dead saints and the living and remaining saints at the parousia, this reunion presupposes a rapture of the living saints into the unseen realm to be with Christ and their departed loved ones who had been raised on that occasion. Paul said that the prospect of such a reunion with those dead saints would comfort and encourage those Thessalonian saints who were grieving for the loss of those fellow Christians there in Thessalonica. Only a real experiential reunion in the unseen realm would be of any comfort and encouragement to those grieving saints. If they were still left on earth after 70 AD, what kind of reunion would that be? Would that be encouraging and comforting to them? I don't think so. 
This text not only shows that there would be some Thessalonian saints still left alive at the time of the parousia, but also that they would be experientially reunited with the resurrected dead saints. There is no indication that the reunion would take place in the seen realm back on earth and that those dead saints would be resurrected back into the seen realm to live on earth again, but rather that the living saints would be changed into the unseen realm and then reunited with their departed loved ones and then caught up together with them to be with Christ forever afterwards. That's what Paul is teaching here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's teaching a real reunion of both the living and the resurrected dead in the unseen realm. A real experiential reunion, which would be very encouraging to those saints who were grieving about the loss of their fellow Christians there in Thessalonica. Furthermore, in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but still in the same context, Paul again referred to those saints who would be awake at the time of the parousia. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, living or dead, at the time of the parousia, we will live together with him. Therefore, he says, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So, the whole basis for their encouragement was this reunion with their departed loved ones at the parousia. Notice how the commentaries explain the meaning of this expression in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, whether we are awake or asleep. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says, whether we are found among the living or the dead when he comes. The object here is to show that the living would have no advantage over the dead at the parousia. This was designed to calm their minds in their trials and to correct an error which seems to have prevailed in the belief that those who were found alive when he should return would have some priority over those who were dead. Thus, it seems clear that Paul consistently throughout the context of both chapters, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, was encouraging the living saints not to grieve for their dead saints as if the dead saints would miss out on the blessings that would be given to the living saints at the parousia. Evidently, the living saints there at Thessalonica thought that only those who lived and remained of the parousia would get those benefits and blessings at the parousia, or that the living would get the benefits first. However, Paul reassures them that the dead would be raised first and reunited with the living saints before the blessings were given to the whole group of saints, including both the resurrected dead and the changed living saints. The living saints would get the same reward together with at the same place and time as the resurrected dead. There is a reunion of those living and dead saints, plus a reception of their eternal rewards at the same time at the parousia. This implies that the living saints would have to be changed into their immortal bodies before they were reunited with their resurrected loved ones in the unseen realm. 
According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, this resurrection of the dead and change of the living occurred in the blink of an eye at the last trump. Thus, both the living and the dead got their eternal rewards at the same time and place at the parousia. There was an experiential reunion of the living saints with their departed loved ones which must have been extremely encouraging for those Thessalonian saints to contemplate and wait anxiously for. This reunion idea proves that Paul is not referring to two different kinds of reward at the parousia, one kind of reward for the dead and another kind of reward for the living, or that he's referring to two different times of reward the dead being rewarded at the parousia, but the living only later at their physical death. Paul teaches here very clearly that both the living and dead saints were reunited before they were caught up together to receive their rewards at the same time and same place in the presence of Christ in the unseen realm above. This reunion motif not only shows that some of the Thessalonian saints would still be alive on earth at the time of the parousia, but also shows that those same living saints could not be still left on earth after the parousia, while their resurrected loved ones were already enjoying their heavenly rewards. The reunion of both the living and the dead at the parousia was in the unseen spiritual realm, not on earth in the visible realm. This explains why the living saints had to be changed at the parousia so that they could be reunited with their departed loved ones in the unseen realm. In that same context of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul prayed that the spirit, soul, and body of some of those saints in Thessalonica would be preserved complete without blame at the parousia. Here again is another reference to saints remaining alive until the parousia, still in their body. Their body would be preserved complete without blame at the parousia. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. This is obviously referring to some living saints who would still be in their bodies on earth at the time of the parousia showing once again that there was a significant group of saints who remained alive until the parousia and therefore would have still been around afterwards to testify about what they saw, heard, and experienced at the parousia unless they were raptured out of there. In his second epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul again indicated that those living saints who would be suffering in the persecution at the time of the parousia would receive relief from those tribulations when he came in flaming fire to avenge his saints. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10. And he says that at that day, at that time when they were rescued out of the tribulation at the parousia, he says that they would glorify him on that day and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed, living or dead. What does that tell you? That certainly implies that there would be some saints in Thessalonica still alive at the time of the parousia, and it was certainly more than one for sure. The number of living and remaining saints is growing bigger with every text we look at here. 
Jesus charged the faithful living saints at Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verse 25, to hold fast until I come. This also allows for the possibility that there were some faithful saints at Thyatira who remained alive until the parousia. So we add another city to our list of cities that were said by Apostle Paul and Jesus and the other apostles to have people in them, saints in them, faithful saints who would live and remain until the parousia. Apostle Paul is not the only one. Apostle Peter also wrote to the Jewish Christians scattered throughout Turkey and urged those living saints to prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Well, question. Did they get the grace that was supposed to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Did they live and remain and get that grace? And what was that grace? This statement allows for the possibility that some of those saints in Turkey remained alive until the parousia, at which time they received the grace that would be brought to them at the parousia. Did they receive that grace? Did they know they received it? Did they experience that grace in any cognitive way? If so, why didn't they talk about it afterwards if they were still alive on earth after the parousia? Moreover, Paul, John, and Jude mentioned in several texts that those who remained alive at the time of the parousia would be presented to Christ and would stand in his presence right along with the resurrected dead, and would glorify him on that day and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. Colossians 3, verse 4. 1 John 2, verse 28. And Jude 24. All these texts show that these saints would stand before Christ in his presence with the resurrected dead at the parousia. Furthermore, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul reminds the saints in Philippi about the bodily transformation that would happen to all those saints who were still alive at the time of the parousia, thus implying that Paul believed some of the saints there at Philippi would live and remain until the parousia, at which time their mortal bodies would be transformed into glorious immortal bodies like Christ. Well, there's dozens more of these expectation statements like these that we've looked at scattered throughout all of the epistles of our New Testament, all of which point to the clear and unmistakable conclusion that there would be quite a number of elect ones, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, who would survive the Neronic persecution and remain alive until the parousia. They would be a part of that bride that Christ would receive to himself at the parousia. If you would like to see more examples of all these expectation statements, simply request my two PDFs entitled Expectations of Pre-70 Saints, and the other one is entitled How Would He Return? 
those two articles list a whole bunch of those expectation statements showing what the living saints were expecting to experience at the parousia. The name of those two documents, again, are Expectations of the Pre-Seventy Saints and How Would He Return? Just look at all the various places scattered throughout the Roman Empire where there would have been elect ones who remained alive until the Parousia. The text that we've just looked at mentioned Judea, Palestine, Pella, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Crete, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, and all the churches of Asia and Turkey. Those living elect saints in all those locations, inside and outside Palestine, were certainly not killed at the Parousia when Jesus saved and gathered and rescued and relieved and rewarded them. So they should have still been around after 70 AD unless they were raptured. That is more than a few saints scattered all over the diaspora, including Asia, Minor, and Turkey, where Papias and Polycarp showed up a few decades later, saying that the Parousia was still future. Some of those younger saints, like Timothy, could easily have lived until the first decades of the second century. If they were not raptured out of there, some of them would have lived long enough after AD 70 to have heard what Papias and Polycarp were teaching and would have set the record straight. But we hear nothing from any of them after AD 70. Papias and Polycarp get away with their delusion, uncontested by any saints who lived through the Parousia and were still around afterwards. This was a very strange silence at the very critical time when the Gnostics and Judaizers and other heretics were flourishing. We have all kinds of written documents from the heretics and futurists about all kinds of lesser important things, but not one word about this greatest of all eschatological events being fulfilled at AD 70. If those saints were still around after experiencing the parousia, their silence in the face of all this false teaching is incriminating and discrediting. It means that they fumbled the ball at the very time they should have been scoring points against the heretics and futurists. And there's no excuse for that silence unless they were no longer on earth after the parousia. The rapture easily explains their silence afterwards about the occurrence of the parousia. They were silent because they were absent. But the non-rapture preterist, our critics, do not have that excuse for the silence. They don't have the absence excuse. Because as we've seen, there's too many texts which talk about the significant number of true faithful Christians, the elect ones, who would still be alive at the time of the parousia. But according to our rapture critic theory, those elect saints were still around after AD 70. And even though they were in a position to easily refute the false teachers and correct the futurist notions, they chose instead to remain silent. Do you see how that would discredit those remaining Christians from being true elect Christians? They were faithful elect Christians at the parousia. Why weren't they still faithful elect ones after the parousia? What happened to their faithfulness after the parousia? 
That is a deeply troubling question in view of Apostle Paul's statement that at the parousia, those saints would see face to face and know fully as they had been known because the perfect state would arrive after which they would see face to face and know fully as they had been known. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. So if those elect ones, that is, the true Christians, were still around, afterwards, their experience at the parousia would have fully enlightened them, and they would be in a much better position to set the record straight about what had just happened in AD 70. But we see none of that. They're totally silent. At the very time, they should have been shouting from the rooftops and dancing in the streets. If the parousia had not saved them and gathered them and relieved them and rewarded them as they were expecting, then they would have been disillusioned and would have been complaining about the non-fulfillment of their expectations. But we do not hear either of those things, bragging about it or complaining about it. All we have is silence. Do you catch the power of that? None of the 80 individuals mentioned in the pages of our New Testament before AD 70 ever reappear afterwards. They vanish without a trace, never to be heard from again. No more missionary trips, no more epistles, and no correction and refutation of the heretics and the futurists. No claims of fulfillment of the parousia. Historians have noticed this strange silence and have wondered about it. They label that generation right after AD 70 as the dark or obscure period. John A.T. Robinson, in his book, Redating the New Testament, calls it the tunnel period. So, even though the vast majority of living Christians were killed in the Neuronic persecution, the above text still indicate that a significant number of saints scattered all over the diaspora certainly more than a few, remained alive until the parousia, at which time they were rescued out of the Great Tribulation, gathered into Christ's presence in the unseen realm, and given the rewards that Christ had promised to give them at his parousia. Once again, we have to turn thumbs down on the suggestion by our critics that all the true Christians were either killed in the neuronic persecution fell away in the great apostasy, or became disillusioned by Hellenistic thinking immediately after experiencing the parousia, so that there were no true Christians left around to claim the fulfillments and set the record straight. The New Testament texts that we have just looked at soundly refute such a notion and show that there had to be a significant number of faithful elect ones who lived and remained until the parousia. Too many, in fact, to allow for their complete silence after experiencing the parousia. Yet the silence is there, screaming at us, a deafening silence. Where did all those living and remaining saints go at the parousia? Our critics have to spiritualize all these parousia texts because they know their goose is cooked if those texts are talking about a rapture of individual saints. And if there was a rapture of individual saints, 
then the resurrection text absolutely cannot be talking about a collective body of saints being raised out of covenantal death at the parousia. Even though that is a valid concept, it is not what these parousia texts are talking about. They'll have to look elsewhere for a text that talks about that because these resurrection texts in our New Testament and these parousia texts that we've just looked at are not talking about a collective body resurrection. They're talking about individuals being raised out of the dead and the living individuals changed to be with them in the unseen realm. But that hasn't stopped our critics from waving their magic hyper-spiritualizing wand over those texts and declaring them fulfilled in some kind of mystical, figurative, allegorical, symbolic, apocalyptic, covenantal, or spiritual sense. They cannot interpret those texts individually and literally because that would nuke their collective body resurrection view. So they have to hyper-spiritualize the problem away. So we can see that it's only the rapture view which can reasonably explain the silence and the absence of those pre-seventy saints after the parousia. The rapture critics simply do not have the silver bullet that they think they have. They are merely grasping at straws, desperately trying to come up with something, anything, to avoid the inevitable demise of their collective body explanation for these texts. Well, that will wrap it up for this time. If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we looked at here in this session, do not hesitate to email me. Please send me some feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.